Hello, everybody. I am Monty, Master of the Revels for Rude Grooms. And yes, I am all alone right now. Um, but Daniel Kemper is walking up the stairs right now. Um, so he's about to pop on here and say hello to you. In fact, speak of the devil, he walks in the door. Hi, everybody. So I just had a whale of a time getting here. So I want it on record. If this takes off... I will move to Queens just for the ease of convenience of trying to get from one place to another on the weekends because my God, the MTA, Jesus, God in heaven. Well, then I need you all to make sure that this takes off because that would make my quality of life so much higher to have Daniel Kemper living within walking I'm distance. I'm making the promise now. Yeah, so. so basically I blame you and all of my depression is your fault if you don't make us take off. So Oof, do you hear that? That was the sound of the gauntlet being thrown, mm-hmm. people. That's Speaking what that of was. gauntlets and depression, who wants a glass of wine or something? Yes. She is an actor, a singer, a model, a dancer, a poet who was most recently featured on the hit CBS show FBI, and she's here with us today at this Wood No. Please welcome Annika Kumli. How you doing, Fran? I am good. How are you guys? Good. Good. Very glad to have you here. I'm very glad to be here. Sorry I'm a little late. It's okay. I just had a whole rant before you got here about how awful the trains were. I feel like the, the subway gets us at our worst. You know, like we we sob to ourselves on the subway sure. or you write angry hate poetry on Facebook when you're stuck on a train at 2 a.m. as it sits Please tell me you have angry 2 a.m. hate poetry ready to go. I mean, like, I might to need go. to go, like, get, like, find <laughs> it, but, like, probably I do. If you can find some of your angry hate poetry that you wrote on the subway at 2 a.m., please let us know. We will record it and then, like, put I it will. up on Instagram. That would be, like, the best thing it's ever. It's around. Yeah. We'll do a special episode where we only, like, everyone comes in and there's no actual speaking. It's just all guests reading their angry subway hate I poetry. I love that. I mean, I, like, I kind of repurpose things. I was talking at work today about the fact that when I was in college, I took a stat 60 class my senior year. The teacher was like, definitely not feeling the class anymore. He taught it for like 10 (laughs) years. He was like, this is the last time I'm teaching this class. I hate you all. And he was like, I will like, you will either get a good grade or you will fail and I will not try and help you. But the thing about this class was instead of doing like a midterm or a final, he did a cumulative test at the end of each week. So by week five, you're getting tested on five weeks of material. Week six, you're getting tested on six. And so it was a pretty brutal way of doing it. But what I did do was I repurposed the words of one day more from Les Miserables to (laughs) one test more, one more day, another test for me, this never ending road to stats 60. That is phenomenal. (laughs) That's just, that's excellent. And I uh, would sing it to myself on my way to um, taking that test every Marching Friday. behind Literally. a righteously furious mob, I'm, I'm imagining. I mean, it was like all like pretty hungover students on their bicycles, but like same difference. Which like yeah, furious college, mob. that's furious a righteous mob. furious yeah, mob. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so let's jump right on into it. We know you obviously because you worked with uh, Rude Grooms last December with Tragedy of Miriam. And The Roaring Girl. Which, for those listening, Tragedy of Miriam is the first extant play written by a woman in English. And The Roaring Girl is about a real-life person named Mal Cutpurse, who was a thief on South Bank in Shakespeare's time, dressed as a man, chain smoke, pipes, 
and also would like hop up on stage and perform songs all the time. And apparently she actually played herself in this play, despite the fact that it was incredibly against the law. I did not know that. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's super cool. If you're going to do that, like you probably have big enough balls to pull off being a man playing a woman. For sure. Yeah. You know, so like probably they're probably just too afraid to do anything. Yeah, they're like, it's like, let me let me cross her. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like it's illegal for a woman to go on and play this part. And I guarantee she was the kind of person is like, and which of you is going to, to stop, stop me? me? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So for those people who do not know you, yeah. give us a little blurb about yourself. Like, tell us tell us all the most important things that anyone would need to know about you ever. Oh God, I thought this show oh, okay. was supposed to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm originally from Boulder, Colorado. About 100,000 people and shockingly white. <laughs> people are like, oh, like Colorado, like craft beers and like skiing, yo. And you're like, well, it, not in the 1990s. In the 1990s, it was like the governor is like probably like a former, maybe current member of the KKK. We're like not totally sure. And in the nineties, like in the eighties for, for darn sure. And like was kind of a cow town and really was not anything exciting. I'd been in theater and performing arts since I could open my mouth. My parents were like, dear God, she's dramatic. Um, (laughs) so, uh, I'd been, I think I was in my first play when I was like four and I had been doing it ever since and went to Stanford of all places, studied political science, theater, performing theater, performing arts and Italian. So they essentially handed me my, my degree and said, enjoy being poor in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and I, I moved, I worked in politics, um, for a little bit and I moved to New York cause I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't stomach the idea of going to LA. Uh, I think that there's something about New York that you have to really, <laughs> you have to really want something in order to be here. That um, is a thousand percent correct. Like yeah. getting to Queens on a Friday night. Like right. getting to really Queens on a Friday right. night. Yeah. Exactly. You know, my, I think my main thing is that I think I've always been really passionate about both the arts and politics, um, you know, political activism and being socially conscious and social mm-hmm. issues and all those those kinds of things. And um, thinking about how those those pieces can intersect because storytelling is how you change people's minds. It's mm-hmm. how you change society. There's very little that happens nowadays outside of the civil rights movement uh, and and huge movements like that that seem to have the ability to affect social change on the level that the arts do. Where do you think that comes from? What is it specifically about the arts that puts people in that place where they are more receptive to ideas and points of view outside of their own, as opposed to a really well-conceived argument in a debate. In the human experience, we as people are driven sort of by two things. One, we're driven by our intense desire to connect and be seen and understood, but we're also driven by this intense desire to be safe. And sometimes those two things can work in opposition to each other. And insecurity is, I think, one of the biggest severers of connection between those two things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that with the way that we have crafted the arts is in a way to be moved. Regardless of country or origin or age, we are a species that is built on storytelling. Everything in our lives is storytelling. Where we're from, where we grew up, why we went to college, why we majored in what we majored. There's a story behind all of it. Books, movies, commercials, the way we advertise to each other. I mean, the way we present to each other is all connected somehow by stories. And we are 
driven, I think, very much that way. Um, and so we are moved very much that way because before we could write things down, we told one another mm. about things. Having somehow a piece of someone else's life seem similar to your own is the biggest reminder that our experiences are shared and by default we are in company and we are not isolated. And I think that that is the base, that is the base drive of us all as people is to know that we're not alone. The, the pursuit of finding the thing that binds us together or that, yes. that links us all together. Thus play I in one person, many people. Yes, yes yeah. exactly. People will go into a play wanting to be moved. So yeah. there's, there's like an inherent volunteerism mm-hmm. in going to experience theater. It's like, this isn't happening to me. I didn't just stumble upon this. I went in. I chose. I chose this. I'm going in deliberately. There's, I feel like a sub, a subconscious agreement or like a contract to be like, I'm open to seeing a difference of opinion. One of my very favorite acting teachers, an actor named Reed Burney, mm-hmm. uh, would say frequently throughout class, you have the possibility when you go on stage to make someone's life completely different afterwards. Every time the lights go down, there's this little like intake of breath that we all have that's mm-hmm. like, my life could change right now. One of the reasons why I love live theater so much is because in no other art form or instance are you able to sit in an audience and have a story performed for you Mm. that renders you so human at the same Mm. time that it does that to other people. Where Mm -hmm. you're sitting, all of us have had that experience where we're sitting in a theater and you are cracked open at the same time as everyone else around you is. Everyone for some reason is connecting with the story that's being told because it applies to their life on Mm. some level. You went to Stanford Mm -hmm. for theater and political science. I did. So have you always had this idea of merging the the interconnectivity that theater brings about in people with the desire to bring about social change. So I've been really interested in politics. I remember watching the Bush Kerry debates when I was in eighth grade. You could tell that there was the the attempt at a whole lot of power. And I was interested in just what that meant. Um and then getting to understand like, okay, well, policy wise, you know, why is this interesting? How do you formulate your opinions? But I don't think, actually, it's funny that you say it seems like those things have been married for a long time. They have been so present in me for a long, long time. Uh, I'm actually a Gemini, and not many people tend to think that I am. I have no idea what star signs mean. Could you please explain that to me? (laughs) So Geminis are known for being like super, like sort of emotionally volatile and all over the place. They're like the diva on set. That's definitely the sense that I get from you. Oh, yeah. Super. Yeah. Get me wine. Get me more wine. <laughs> I don't even like. But the 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 idea is um, the Gemini's are are twins, and they're sort of like two halves to people, and they generally tend to see those mirrored like emotionally, like the super high and super low, almost like bipolarish. But actually, the only way that I've sort of like identified that I sort of have those two pieces in me is really like in my love for the arts and my like deep commitment to like politics. But I think, you know, one of the things, one of the things that people would always say whenever I told them what I'd studied in college, they're like, oh, politics and theater, that goes so well together. (laughs) And I was like, thanks, Tony, pour yourself another gin and tonic. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I do think that there's a real point to that is that people who are really good 
at being in the public sector from a, on a, you know, politician sort of scale, they're incredibly good at making people feel heard. Mm. It's almost mm. like when you come out of a movie and you feel totally inspired. You know, what's a movie that you guys have felt completely inspired by? Whiplash. I love that movie, but it's also one of those movies that is so harrowing emotionally mm. as an artist that like, I can only really watch it once a year. Mm -hmm. The whole thesis of that movie is when it comes to being in the top tier of your craft, do you have what is required in terms of devotion and dedication and commitment to do what is needed to be the best at what you do? Mm. And at the end of the day, is it worth it? Because mm. you watch, uh, you watch Miles Teller's character, like, essentially emotionally and in some cases physically destroy himself to be what he sees in his mind is the best version of himself at this thing. Mm. He does not want to be good. He wants to be the best at what he does. What does that mean to be great? And once you have the idea of what that greatness is, how far are you willing to go to get it? What are you willing to mm. sacrifice to yeah. achieve it? But thing. I... But I love at the end of the movie that it doesn't really answer whether or not it was worth it. It doesn't show you what happens when he walks off stage. It doesn't show you what his relationship mm. is like yeah. to J.K. Simmons' character, who serves as like essentially both the inspiration and the antagonist. Yeah. So it right. leaves you with the question of like, yeah, as an audience member, you feel satisfied because the story wrapped up in a, like in a triumphant way. But like, as an artist, you kind of have to think about like, let's say you're in that person's position and then yeah. your story wraps up there. Is it actually worth it? You know, is yeah. it worth essentially breaking yourself? That's a huge question. And did you sort of, did you feel inspired by that movie or did you feel like more deeply, deeply questioning? It's honestly a little bit of both mm -hmm. because I tend to see myself as a person who's like, if you work hard enough and you dedicate enough time to do a thing that you really want, eventually you'll be able to get there. Like mm -hmm. you will develop the skill set, you will get the opportunity. One of the things that um, I heard from Kristen Johnston in our third year at Atlantic, at some point in their career, everybody who works at this business long enough will get their shot. Yeah. Everyone gets their shot at some point. And some people capitalize on it and some people don't. Some people are fortunate enough to get a second or third or sometimes fourth opportunity, depending on who you are. But as she said, anybody who works hard enough and works long enough in this industry gets their shot. And it really matters. It really depends on what you do with it in that moment. So I'm a, I'm a person who looks at that and is like, 
even though it doesn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily happen on the timetable that I saw for myself at like 18 when I knew nothing about how the world works. That's funny because at 18, I knew everything about how the world works and it actually all turned out to be accurate. Yeah, me too. I was. (laughs) Well, you know, you know what it happened? I think like my friends told me about that one class, like that one day in school where like they had a person come in from like the Bilderberg group that was like, here's how you master the world. But I was sick with bronchitis that day. Dude, you got to go to Bilderberg. I know. I just like, I missed it. That was your one chance. I know. That was it. I missed the boat. I missed the boat. It's gone. It's never going to happen. It's because I had bronchitis. I had bronchitis that one day in sophomore year. Well, now I know what to get you for your birthday. Build a bear (laughs) workshop. Build a bear. But so to like, to circle back to your question, I felt like I left questioning because I was like, what if there was a thing that you were chasing and you had spent all of this time and all of this effort and all of this energy toward getting, and then you reach the moment where you are like, you're essentially knocking at the door. Yeah. And then you find out like, hey, you can have this thing, but it will it will cost you personal relationships. Yep. It will cost you your sense of identity and your sense of self. If it costs you everything, would you do it? And it's a question that I struggle with. I would do it. Yeah? If it costs you everything, yep. why? Why is it worth it? I don't know why it's worth it, but I know that I would. Okay, but why though? Yeah, what's the motivator? Because that's a lot to give up. There is a lack of being able to find content in the day-to-day. Bizarrely, I think it's, I think it's connected to my social anxiety, mm-hmm. my depression, my narcissism, my absolute hunger and need to be remembered after I die. Mm. That last one I will latch on to. Same. What do you, what yeah. Do you, yeah. I understand like the, like all of what you said. I have always felt, I think very much torn between wanting the world to remember my name. Very, very much Achilles. Um, mm-hmm. So who I'll always think of. It's my favorite of, bad right? movie of all time. Oh my God. I, I love, love that it's movie. It's a great so movie. Much. I stand by it. So the director's cut is Awesome. Good. I like, I love Troy Brad Pitt the, doing the, that kill move. Oh my, yeah, it's Melissa to the great like, movie. It's oh. super, it is super. When he like comes into the tent and just like takes off his armor, I was like 14 and was like, oh dear. Gosh. I actually, that is actually, I'll stand by that. There are a lot of things I like about Troy. Troy is delightful. I like Brad, I actually really do delightful. like Brad Pitt as Achilles. He has some of my favorite moments in that movie. I mean, like, it's an incredible accent. Yeah. I don't know what accent oh, it is, it, but oh, it's incredible. Knows. The first time that like Achilles and Hector have uh, have their first meeting in the oh, temple of Eric Apollo. Yes. yes. And like yes. Eric Bana as Hector Prince. is like, He's like he's amped up and ready to go because his hair he j- in that movie is dynamite. By it's the way. actually glorious. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, but he's like he's like amped up and ready to go in the first act and is like ready to fight Achilles and he's like fight me and Brad fight Pitt right now. Brad Pitt as Achilles is just like cool as the other side of the pillow. He's just like why kill you now, Prince of Troy? With no one here to see you fall. Oh <laughs> no! Like, it's like it's like if if the Lord of the Rings movies had had like a really terrible like brother-in-law. Oh yeah, it would be Troy. Oh yeah, but like I, I will even stand- there even the even the song the because think of like the. Lord of the Rings was like, it's very much, it's very much reminiscent of the two towers. I won't lie. I legit would watch Troy any day of the week before Lord of the Rings movie. Okay. 
I real? saw absolutely. I what? saw Troy in the same span no. of time. Yeah. You would you would pick Troy over Lord of the Rings? No, I meant I would watch Troy in addition to the Lord of the Rings <laughs> movies. Okay, that's I can stand by that. Yeah. No, Lord of the Rings trumps all. This uh, it was written by uh, David Benioff, one of the co-writers of Game of Thrones. So, but going back to this idea, and I think like the idea of Achilles in that movie is great because he has that conversation with his mother before he leaves. Yeah. She's like, if you stay, you'll find a wife. You'll be happy. You will have a family. You will be happy. You'll be loved. And your children and their children and their children's children will remember you. But eventually, you will people be will forget you. You will yeah. be forgotten. If you leave the world will remember your name. But she says something that I will never forget, which I actually love. She said, but your glory walks hand in hand with, with your, your doom. doom. If you leave, you yeah. will never return home and I will never see my son again. The thing that gives me pause is, yes, I have these things that I want to do with my life, but I also am very wary about becoming a person that the people closest to me cannot recognize. I would argue that the person who knows me the most is my mother. Mm. Essentially because we're the same person. You've met her. You know. Yes, we you are, are the same we person. Are the same I'm person. the same as my mother too. Yeah. We are the Hi, mom. <laughs> Sorry. We are the same. I love you, mom. We're not the same. <laughs> <laughs> we but I are love like, you very much. But my mom and I are very, we are very much the same. It's one of the things that, I would be concerned about in pursuit of that, that what it would cost would shape me into a person where I would come home and the person to whom I think I am the closest would be able to look at me and be like, I don't know you. Do you think that politicians don't go through the exact same thing? I 100% believe that they do. Yeah. Like and this of course is, they do. This, yeah. is, this is the thing. I remember, I will never forget this. There was a time when I was living in Colorado. It was right after I'd graduated from college. I was working for the governor at the time. You worked for the governor of Colorado? I did, yeah. In what capacity? Uh, in a couple different capacities. I worked as um, a legislative aide, which was a temporary position. Um, the Colorado legislative session happens over about five a five-month period. And so the executive office hires two legislative aides per term. And then I went and worked for his re-election campaign in 2014, uh, which we won, which was actually surprising because the incumbent senator at the time, Mark Udall, uh, who was a Democrat, lost to a guy named Cory Gardner, who is oh, now right. up for re-election. Up for re-election yeah. real so soon. let's mm-hmm. go do some work. I worked for him on that. And then we did get real, we did win re-election. And then I worked on his inaugural committee wow. um, as an events director. So um, She's a real big deal. I, uh, it was very, very cool. Um, I did a lot of really good work. You meet a whole smattering of people in politics. Um really, really awesome people and people who leave some to be desired. But I think mm. it's a good representative of what power does to people sounds and really proximity. Different other industries. Sounds really different. Yeah. Business yeah. and entertainment. Especially and all the like arts. That. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> just drawn to industries where you get, you know, sort of polarizing people. But I remember driving home during that time and I was listening to this big piece that they'd done on NPR about a guy who had run for president in the 80s. He was a U.S. senator in Colorado. It came out that he had had an affair. And it was the first time that publicity went crazy over a politician. Because like Kennedy had affairs all over the place. Like nobody cared. And like just in general, politicians were always given sort of this 
room to breathe. But this affair came out. It turned into this huge scandal. And I remember vividly listening to this story as I'm driving. His wife and his children had to be smuggled out in a car from their house because the press was like up against the windows trying to get to them. And it was the time that like the fourth wall between politicians and America broke and it's never been repaired. It has changed the kind of people who run. Right. For Mm. office because very few people are willing to put the people they love in situations where they're going to be just torn apart by the public, by the media, by everyone who wants to know every scrap of information about their lives, about what what they've done. How inhumane. Right. And like we do it to celebrities, we do it to politicians, Mm -hmm. and it's taken a lot of incredibly good people out of the public sector. And so I think that you see a lot of crossover. I think the more I've gotten older, the more I realize that like the arts and politics, I'd always tried to sort of divorce them in my in myself. And I feel that they just belong together. When I was working on Antigone two years ago, I brought a new adaptation, Elizabethan verse for a theater in North Carolina called the Gilbert Amazing. Theater. Amazing. Yeah, Daniel was in it's the first re- reading. It's really good. It's a really it's for the rude grooms sometimes. It's a really it's a really good adaptation. But I spent a lot of time because I'm you know an uber nerd learning ancient Greek and reading up on, <laughs> yes. on the Athenians. And one of the things that I came across that like blew my mind was that in Athens democracy was considered to be intertwined with theater. The festival of Dionysus, where all of cool. the plays we know were performed was a cool. required political, social, and religious event. And you could not vote, even if you were a citizen, if you didn't attend the festival and didn't see the plays. Theater was literally intertwined with democracy like and the origins of both Western democracy and Western theater. So g- literally going to the theater was, in a sense, a part of your civic duty. duty. Yeah, absolutely. Being culturally aware. <laughs> now, you said that for a long time, you tried to divorce yeah. the political and the, thea- like the theatrical or the artistic part of yourselves. And it sounds like you don't do that anymore. Was that, a, was that a gradual process or can you think back to a specific inflection point? <sighs> you know... For the first couple of years, I was in New York trying to figure out how to work this industry and get an agent. And um, But as I'm working through all of that, I think I felt like one of them was the Stanford part of me, the politically sort of intellectual part. And one of mm-hmm. them was the artistic part of me and the one who loved emotion and feeling and experience and story. And I think over time what happened as I sort of honed my ability to audition and honed my understanding of the work that resonated well with me and the way that people saw me and the way that I see myself is not as those two things divorced. I mean, mm-hmm. my best casting is for things like young political aid or young lawyer or things in that regard that are like very much intellectually driven, uh, yet artistically capable. I was just at a class with casting director named Sigda Bigel. And one of the things he was talking about was how that is, particularly if you're trying to break in, like the thing that most actors don't understand is they try and present themselves as a thing, as As an actor, the most generic actor possible. Right. Rather than like leaning into, oh, I took eight years of French. I've gotten auditions based on the fact that I speak Italian and 
I am really effective if it's anything that's like journalist or politician or anything to do with like judges or elections or lawyers or things like that. Because I feel comfortable and confident in that world in the way that the arts don't always let you be. My first audition at the public was purely because I spoke French. Totally. Hmm. And I think that that's something that like I had always been sort of taught to believe that those were two different worlds and two different parts of myself. Um, And I'm doing a lot of writing now. Uh, that involves a lot of politics and a lot of political stuff and doing it for an artistic purpose is um, really empowering. And it feels like a, like a merging of two things that have always meant, been meant to be together. Can I ask you to define three terms for me? Yeah. Art, Mm -hmm. entertainment, Mm. propaganda. Ooh, I would say art Art is what moves the heart. Art is what we fight to protect. It is the very essence of humanity. Winston Churchill's quote during World War II is always what will make me inspired to be an artist. And he said, if we're not doing it to save the arts, then what are we doing it for? Because the arts are the very essence of humanity and human human expression. That's beautiful. The very essence of it, what we're fighting against is those who want to crush humanity Mm. out of the human existence. Entertainment, I would say, is what allows us to forget and escape and enjoy. And some of that can be art. I mean, art doesn't always have to be this deep moving thing. It can be joyous and it can be vivacious and alive. Uh, But I think that entertainment is what allows us to carry ourselves away in that jubilee. Um, And propaganda... I have a deep, deep loathing of what propaganda is and what it means and what it does Um, because it is taking for granted that people are busy and people are stressed and people are overwhelmed by life and it tells them how to think and what to believe and how to feel. I think there are two things that are really at the root of what's happening today in society. I think The biggest thing that's happening is America is a country that has a very unique history in this world. And it is a history that we have spent a lot of time ignoring. Our entire presence and strength in this world uh, is built on the foundation of stolen land and slave labor and the subjugation of people. You can't have centuries of that exist and have it go underground. I mean, I would take slavery in a lot of ways up through like the 1960s in the sense that like for a hundred years after the civil war ended, you had so many things in place that just kept things so the same. And I would say in about the 1980s, it becomes politically incorrect to be like overtly racist. And you have a couple decades of it being politically incorrect to be overtly racist And so things go underground for a couple of decades, but that doesn't solve the fact that America was built the way that it was. I remember when 2016 happened and Trump was elected, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who is black and she was saying that everyone who's white and liberal is so surprised that this happened. We were not surprised. Are you like, wake up. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, you can't see it, (laughs) but... uh, Annika just made that comment and I just leaned back in my chair, lifted my head back and had like just the most knowing grin. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, it was, it's true. And like, I am, I want to admit the fact that like I was a guilty party and 
in thinking that it was impossible. I mean, I I can't get over the fact that 60% of white women voted for him because he was on camera admitting to sexually assaulting women. That to me is a problem we need to address is like women that buy into the propaganda of things like that. And how do we break down these giant socially constructed barriers between us, race and gender and socioeconomic class. And I'm so convinced that one of the most effective ways to do that is through the arts because nothing else seems to have the power. We've forgotten what it is to listen. What would you say is the ultimate goal of the kind of politically motivated theater that you are trying to create? create? I think there are some truths we have yet to tell. Oh, 100%. I think a lot of them present themselves. I think we think of politics, regardless of how messed up it is, regardless of how tumultuous the times are, I think we still have this faith in an elected leader we can believe in. Uh, And I think one of the ways that we have really not seen ourselves evolve is how to put women in positions of power and respect them there, and specifically to have women respect other women in positions of power. There is something that just bothers me so deeply about women who want to hold other women down. I think one of the things that has come up is that when I talk to people our age about politics is they want to say, we just have to wait for people to die. And that is, I think, a really dangerous way of thinking about things. It's incorrect also. It's so incorrect. Like... People that have sucked have existed forever. It's it's just lazy. It's freaking lazy. I'm trying so hard to be PG. That is, that's the incorrect way to think about it because it's like, what do you think that these people whom you are waiting to die are doing? They are passing on. They're teaching to their people. They are communicating. They're passing on through the oral tradition. Literally storytelling. Yes. Story freaking telling, my men. There was an episode of of the New York Times, the Daily Podcast, maybe a week ago, that was just really excellent reporting on the way that they do polling for people in swing states and the first primary states. And they're essentially polling Democratic primary candidates against Donald Trump. They had a pretty consistent answering of we would vote for Bernie or Biden. When they asked about Elizabeth Warren, Trump wins in almost every single state. And then they probe a little more deeply and they specifically are targeting non-college educated white voters because they underpolled them in 2016. It's what led to a lot of the skewed results. So many of the people that they polled when discussing Elizabeth Warren specifically, it came down to the fact that she was a woman. And so many of the people who didn't like the fact that she was a woman were women. In your expertise, why do you think there is this aversion among certain groups of women to support other groups of women, like other women in positions of power? Where do you think that comes from? On some level, I think women have been told consistently forever that in some way we will never be enough. We will never be smart enough. We'll never be pretty enough. We will never be a good enough wife. We will never be a good enough mother. We can't ever balance all of those things. Like how, how dare we want to have a career and a family and like be able to do all those things successfully and still have time to have sex with our husbands or wives and be respected and seen and have to show up like, you know, nicely made up, but not too made up because you don't want to look hot, but you also don't want to look like you don't care. And 
then what if somebody takes your look the wrong way? Like, are you suggesting something? And then how do you play with those dynamics? There's so many different dynamics at play. Being a woman in the world, being a woman who is successful. And if you are a woman who has struggled to feel seen or recognized or heard, and you feel like other women are coming up and rising up and being seen without going through the same fight that you have been through, Mm -hmm. perhaps that's part of it. But I do think that there is a real sense of a lack of power. I think when you look at the women that helped Harvey Weinstein, I think when you look at the women that have helped Jeffrey Epstein, there is a sick way that power plays into it. I mean, I think a lot of people who probably worked for Harvey Weinstein felt like they were beholden to a structure that would fire them, that would ruin their careers if they told or if they didn't help. I think it's so interesting that amidst all of this, the American Regional Theater was essentially founded by three women, Margot Jones with Nouveau in Dallas, uh, Zelda Vichandler with, with Arena Stage in D.C., and Nina Vance with the Alley in Houston. And the thing is, it's like when women help each other and support one another, it is so powerful. I know that, you know, having been a younger woman who looked up to women who both supported me and deeply disappointed me, the strength of women when we come together is just so fantastic and awe-inspiring. And I wish that we created a society and a culture where where women felt freer to do that, more free to to lead and to support one another and to make the changes they want. And I think we should have a society where men feel more comfortable and able to express their emotions and their and their feelings and support one another in doing that. I mean I don't have emotions <laughs> outside of Monte. So before you read this piece, one of the things that I've noticed that is a recurring theme in the conversation is this concept of power. If you could crystallize for us, how do you define power? I think power is one of those things that's kind of like love, it happens on a gradient. Like think about think about the way that you love a, f- a friend, a friend you don't know that well, but you love them. You don't necessarily know how or what that is, but you love them. Think of a parent or a mentor or somebody who has shaped you and you love them. And think of somebody who's changed your whole life and your understanding of what it means to be seen and you love them. And those are all very different, but they're all intensely powerful. I think that power is the ability to change somebody. And I can feel it when I teach, where I'm explaining the history of something that's happened in America. And I can tell that I am shaping a 12-year-old's mind and how she sees something. And that is power. I can brighten my mother's day with a phone call. And that is power. And I can write a piece on why the governor should have dropped out of the presidential race and run for Senate and people read that and they think something and that is power. You can get on a stage and spew lies and hate and vitriol and rile people up or you can get on stage and spread a message of hope and tomorrow and love and compassion and that is power. Power is the ability to change a mind. It's the ability to change a life. It's the ability to impact the way that somebody experiences their day. I love that. That's great. 
What is this you're going to read for us? It is a spoken word piece Mm -hmm. that I wrote and performed uh, at an event with some Stanford alums who are all in the arts. What's the title? 2019. 2019. Man, what a history this world has seen. Thousands of years have led to this moment and atonement is no component of our American dream. The fights in Washington are democracies in a tailspin. Where along the line did we miss what it means to be human, to listen? Where does this hatred come from? How did numb become who we are with wars of words that don't scratch the surface but leave deeper scars than those already maiming us? And who are we blaming? I thought we discussed this, that race is not the place to place hatred. I thought we discussed this, that women are not the place to be sated. I thought we discussed this, that children are not the place to be jaded. Because every child knows in her bones what it is to have a mother who loves her. And when walls and cages and drones rip families apart, what kind of future can start from there? What kind of future can save us? Before these waves cave in on us, how do we heal from such a reality? It's hard to find a way out, but I say doubt is not about not having faith. Doubt is about not believing that you're safe. Take a breath. Think. Pause. How do you build bridges while still furthering your cause? Because I don't want to live the words, me too, again. I want us as a nation to see beyond the color of skin. How do we dissolve hatred before we become fated to live our history of sin again? We just need to know how to begin again. Until we can find common ground with those we hate or fear, peace cannot be found. We will never be near the end of our suffering. Find love. Find love for those you stand diametrically opposed to. Find how you are similar and see what that love shows you. We are at a point of no return, and we must learn to look in the mirror if we are to see a clearer vision of tomorrow. Look to see where in your life you can make us better and own that responsibility. We are as lost as we let ourselves be. Yes. That was gorgeous. Yes. Annika, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of This Would Know. Before we sign off, tell people where they can find you on the internet. (laughs) At A.E. Kumli, K-U-M-L-I, A-E-K-U-M-L-I. That's Instagram and Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but don't follow me there. That's I don't really use Twitter. And um, and then I also have a web page, which is just AnnikaKumli.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank joining you us. Guys. This was You're delightful. This conversation was I remember amazing. your glue that you say bounces off of me and sticks right on you. Ow! After last week's episode, uh, David Ishorn emailed us saying that we're both incorrigible nerds and he loves it. Thank you, David. So are you. Welcome to the family. He also encourages us to play God of War 4. Daniel, have you played God of War 4? I have not because I don't own a PlayStation, but I have heard from multiple people it is one of the best games of the decade. Well, I do spend more time with me. David also chimes in that in his martial arts practice, the black belt candidates have to fight every other fighter in the school when they are going through for their final test. By the time they get to the end, the students are crying. But the point is that they are to learn that it's easy to feel confident when you're well-rested and have control of the situation, but that the point of the training is not for that scenario. 
It is to maintain your composure when people won't stop hammering you and your limbs feel heavy. Uh, thank you so much, David, for chiming in with those thoughts. I used to fight competitively and I never really went past the intermediate level. But what my teachers used to do on tournament practice every Saturday, I wouldn't fight the other kids who are at my level. I would fight the instructors. I would fight the black belts. And it used to frustrate the hell out of me until I got to a competitive setting. And that's where it finally clicked. Like, oh, that's why you all were doing it? That's why? And so now it's a practice that when I when I teach kids how to play chess competitively, one of the things that they will have to do from time to time is they have to play me. Like they will always ask, like, why do we play you? You're just always going to win. I'm like, maybe. But when you go to tournaments, you're going to have an advantage because I'm like, you will not play anybody who is at my skill level. I want you to imagine that the person sitting across from you knows just as much as I do. And the like that mental image for whatever reason, night and day in terms of in terms of their decision making and the choices that they make in the moment. So yeah, that idea of having to fight other like other masters or other black belts to like to get your black belt, I buy into it. I love it. Uh, Dhruv Iyengar also reached out to us on Instagram, chastising me for my horrific forgetfulness on the name of the Kobayashi Maru, uh, which will never happen again because that was actually the moment I've been most disappointed in myself for my entire (laughs) life up to this point. And let me tell you, there have been a lot. Uh, And last, but certainly not least, because it's from Deborah Sutton, my mom, based on the conversation on failure from last week's episode, uh, she sent us a quote from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Hmm. So thank you so much uh, for sending that in. If you'd like to comment on this week's episode, you can tweet at us at Rude Grooms at this wooden O, insta us at Rude Grooms at this wooden O, or email us this wooden O at rudegrooms.com. That is going to do it for this episode of This Wooden O. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Daniel Kemper. I'm Monty. You can follow me at the Daniel Kemper on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter at Montgomery Sutto, because my name's too damn long. Instagram. It's probably Montgomery Sutton. I don't know. And then be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rude Grooms. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.